Well, good morning, and it is a joy to be with you as you celebrate this homecoming, and thank you for uh, supporting us and standing with us at Southeastern Seminary. The Lord is a blessing in a wonderful way. The school has just experienced its third year of record enrollment. We have now more than 2,800 students that are studying there, uh, 600 in the college and about 2,200 in the seminary. Uh, We're seeing more students go to the international mission field than ever before. We're seeing more students that are going to difficult places in North America like the Northeast and the Northwest, uh, the West Coast, to share the gospel. And uh, we could not do that without the partnership that we have uh, with churches like this one. So thank you for standing with us and supporting us. And I do pray that God will give you 52 more wonderful years if our Lord does not come. In fact, my prayer would be that your greatest years will still be out there in the future as you are on mission here for the Lord Jesus Christ. In that context, a wonderful text I think applies not only to every believer but also to any church is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So if you would, take your Bible and join me in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through verse 3 as we think on the subject, let's run in God's race. Hebrews chapter 12, I'll read for us verse 1 through verse 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, let me make a comment here. You'll see some form of the word endurance in all three verses. So whatever the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate to us today, it has to do with being uh, a persevering, a steadfast, and enduring kind of person. That's the kind of race that the Lord is calling all of us to run. So again, the end of verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I believe if the Bible were being written today, we would find in it illustrations from football, basketball, baseball, golf, tennis, track and field. For when you come to the Bible, you discover that the Holy Spirit moved the authors of Scripture to go into the world of athletics to teach us about the Christian life. Uh, For example, Paul says the Christian life can be compared to a boxing match in 1 Corinthians 9 and and 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Bible says your Christian life can be compared to a wrestling match. Also, though, the Bible says in a number of places, and here clearly in Hebrews, that the Christian life can be compared to a race. Now, he has a very particular race in mind because as we said a moment ago, verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. He's not calling us to run a sprinter's race. Uh, he's not even calling us to run what we might call an intermediate distance race, like the 400 meter or the 800 meter, not even the 1500 meter. No, 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 that's too short. No, I believe if the Bible were being written today, he might have actually used the word marathon. A marathon, 26 miles, 385 yards. It is the longest race run in the Olympics. And so the Bible is saying to us today, God has called you to run a race. And he has called you to run a long 
distance race. This church has been running for 52 years, but in God's economy, you may just be at the quarter uh, mark of the race. Uh, He may have it much more for you to do, much longer for you to run. Some of you that are here today, uh, my age and older, yeah, we've turned at least halfway, and and some of us are headed down perhaps the home stretch. Others of you, oh my goodness, you're just kind of getting out of the starting blocks. And God has a long race, a long distance race. He wants you to run well, and he wants you to finish well. So what I want us to see this morning from these three verses is how is it that we can run the race well, and how is it that we can finish the race well? Note with me, first of all, in verse 1, he tells us that we should find encouragement as we run. He begins by saying, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, whoever the author is, he includes himself to those he is writing, we also, and he says we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, what he is using here, of course, is the imagery of a coliseum, uh, of a stadium. Uh, The grandstands are filled uh, with spectators, and you and I are down there on the track, And we're running the race, and they are there as a source of encouragement. Now, some people see that phrase, great cloud of witnesses, and I've many times been asked the question, well, Danny, do you think people in heaven can see us? Uh, I had a godly uh, grandmother. I had a godly granddaddy. My parents loved the Lord, and and they're in heaven today. Do do you think they're watching? Do, Do you think they can see? I certainly was blessed in that kind of a way. I had a wonderful, godly grandfather, Charlie Galloway, and, and my mother, perhaps the most godly person I ever knew, Emma Lou. And so today, my granddaddy, my mama, they're both in heaven. So are they watching uh, their grandson, uh, their son, preach here today at Adamsville Baptist Church? Are they up there watching? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I wish I did, but I don't. I, I do think this. I don't think he is saying, look up into heaven, they're watching. But rather he is saying two things. One, look around. You're not in this alone. In fact, there is no place for a lone ranger in the Christian life. He says, look around, there are others running with you, but also look back. Because if you'll look back to the past, you'll discover that there are many, many, many men and women who have already run in the race, and they are there. They've already crossed the finish line, and they are there to encourage you and me as we run in the race. It's not by accident that the first word of verse 1 is the word, therefore. And if you come to the seminary and you take Bible interpretation, we will teach you that the word, therefore, is there for a reason. It's a connecting word, and it is connecting us back with what? Chapter 11. Well, what's chapter 11 about? Chapter 11 is this great hall of faith where you have men and women whose lives are recorded to be a, an encouragement to you and to me to run. Now, we don't have time to go through all 40 verses, but I think it would be instructive this morning for just a moment to go back at, at about verse 32 and note that at least two different categories uh, of, uh, of encouragers are there to help you and me stay in the race. Note, first of all, that the Bible says we should be encouraged by what I call the earthly winners. Look with me there at chapter 11 and verse 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets 
who through faith, and now he is going to list no less than 10 extraordinary accomplishments of these men and women of faith. Uh, Verse 33, they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put to a flight of foreign armies and, and women received back their dead by resurrection. Now, folks, that's incredible and extraordinary. In any way you look at it, it's supernatural. And the fact of the matter is, these men and women, now stay with me, these men and women, they were not any different than you and me. They were very normal. Regular people, they they were not extraordinarily wealthy. They did not have unbelievable off-the-scale intellects. Uh, They were just very normal people like you and me. You see, God worked in their lives in this way, not so that people would look at them and say, man, look look how cool that dude is. No. God worked in their lives so we might understand and bear witness to how great he is. You see, he is the hero of the Bible. He is the one that makes great things happen. And the fact is, some of you here today, oh, I know you've never thought about it very much, but the, the fact of the matter is, God would like to do something extraordinary in your life. God would like to do something in your life that could only be explained by His supernatural enablement and His supernatural ability. Is it because you're so brilliant? No, you're not brilliant. You're just pretty normal. Are you extremely wealthy? No, you're just a regular guy or a regular lady. But the fact is, God has a plan for your life that if you will get in the race and run by faith, he he might surprise you with what he does and where he takes you. And so the Bible says we should be encouraged by what I call these earthly winners. But if you were paying attention a moment ago, you would have noticed that I stopped reading right in the middle of verse 35. And uh, he's now in heaven. But if Paul Harvey were here, he would say, now, Danny, go on and, and read the what? The rest of the story. Because the rest of the story is rather different because now we're to be encouraged not by by these earthly winners, but secondly, we're to be encouraged by what I call the heavenly winners. You say, why do you call them heavenly winners? Well, look at the middle of verse 35 and you'll see some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Verse 36, others suffered mockings and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom this world is not worthy. Uh, They wandered about in in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Yet verse 39 says, all these commended through their faith. Some of these, no. Most of these, no. All of these received a well done from heaven. Now, if we'd be honest for a moment, we'd have to acknowledge that at least from uh, an earthly perspective, the world's perspective, Group B didn't, didn't get such a good deal, did they? I mean, Group B is like getting slaughtered. Uh, for their faith in Christ, and yet the Bible says God was pleased with them uh, as he was the first group. In fact, I think what you would understand this morning is this. It's not that hard, brothers and sisters, to serve Jesus when you're on the mountaintop and everything is going well. Anybody can do that. When you're in the valley, uh, when you suddenly lose your wife uh, just taken from you, a while ago, I was 
checking my email. I know you're not supposed to do that in church, but I got a message from someone important to look it up to find out that a very young pastor, just a recent graduate of our school, died this morning of pancreatic cancer, leaving a wife and several children behind. He was in his early 30s. He was the epitome of health three months ago, and he's dead this morning. Now, what will she do? What will those children do? You see, again, it's not hard to serve Jesus when everything is great. But what do you do when everything isn't great? What do you do when you find yourself in a valley? I came to Southeastern Seminary the second time in January of 2004. I had not been there but a few moments, a few months, when I was informed that we had had a tragedy in Iraq and Four of our wonderful missionaries had been gunned down by terrorists. Only one, Carrie McDonald, survived. Her, her, her husband, David, was killed. A single lady, Karen Watson, was killed. And a couple, Larry and Jean Elliott, who are graduates of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, they had also been killed. Uh, Larry and Jean had been career missionaries serving the Lord in Central America. They'd been there for almost 20 years, and uh, it was now time for them to retire. Guess what? They had a a biblical theology, and they understand you don't retire. What's this retire stuff? Where where do you find that in the Bible? You don't. And so you say, well, I I don't have my health. That doesn't mean you retire. You can be a prayer warrior till you take your last breath. Uh, You can be someone who's generous in giving till you don't have anything else to give. Don't don't tell me. And again, I'm 54 now. Aiken's only lived to be about 70, so I'm way past the halfway mark. I I don't intend to retire until they put me in a pine box. I I don't even understand that that mindset. So Larry and Gene, they're at retirement age. They got lots of friends here in North Carolina. They could have come back and just lived a a wonderful life where people would have patted them on the back and told them how wonderful they were and how, how much they'd served the Lord. And they said, no, no, God is calling us to go to Iraq. And so they went to Iraq. They were not there but a few months, and they were gunned down. They have a son by the name of Scott. Scott goes to the same church that I do. I'm a member of the Wake Crossroads Baptist Church in Raleigh. And Scott and his wife attend there. And so when his mom and dad were killed, I called him just to let him know that uh, we were grieving with them and that we were hurting with them and we were so sorry. And I said, well, Scott, how are you doing? And and I'll never forget the conversation. I mean, it's like it was yesterday. He said, well, 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 Dr. Aiken, we're doing fine. We're crying a lot, but we're also rejoicing because mom and dad are with Jesus and that's what they always longed for. And then he said, you might find this very interesting. I got an email yesterday from a man who says he's an atheist. He somehow tracked my email address down. He had heard about what happened to mom and dad. And he said he felt compelled just to write me uh, and to express his his condolences. And then he said in the email, though, he said something like this. He said, you know, isn't it a tragedy that your mom and dad died for no good reason? And he said, you know, I didn't get mad. He's an atheist. Uh, Lost people think like lost people. Why do we get upset when lost people think and act like lost people? That's just an amazing thing to me that sometimes we church people can be such idiots. (laughs) Or scum-sucking dogs. I mean, what what, what are you thinking? How, How did you act before you got saved? Like a lost person. You still act like a sinner, saved by grace, praise his name. So anyway... Guy says something kind of dumb. He said, but I don't get upset. And I wrote him back and I said, you know, I appreciate so much you call, writing me. And he said, um, there's only one thing you said that I, I would have to disagree with. He said, my, my mom and dad didn't die for, for no good reason. 
And then he shared this, and again, this has stuck with me all these years. He said, I told this man that my mom and dad had such a confidence in God's will for their lives that had they known going to Iraq would have meant their death, they would have still gone anyway. I want to have to tell you, folks, that that just kind of hit me between the eyes because I, I began to ask myself, if you knew in advance, Danny Aiken, that obeying the Lord in a certain kind of a way would mean suffering, loss of everything, maybe even loss of your life, would you still follow him and trust him anyway? Would I? Would you? Or is it like, well, I'll follow God as long as it's convenient. I'll stay with Jesus as long as it's comfortable. But if it's going to cost me something, if it's going to involve suffering, then I... I'm just not sure that I'm interested in him. Let me tell you something. If that's your agenda this morning, I got some bad news for you. He's not interested in you. Because he sets the agenda, not you. He's the sovereign Lord, not you. And basically, this text is going to say something like this, and I'll move on. When I gave my son, I gave my best. Can't you trust me with all the rest? That's what Hebrews 12 is all about. And so the Bible says we should find encouragement as we run. Secondly, though, the Bible also says in chapter 12, verse 1, we should focus on the essentials as we run as well. And there are three of them that I'll show you and make a quick comment about each one. First of all, he says, let us also lay aside every weight. That means we've got to run cleanly. Secondly, he says, we also are to lay aside sin And really, a better translation is the sin which clings so closely. I think that means we've got to run with confidence. And then thirdly, he says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That, I believe, means we're to run this race with consistency. So he calls us, run cleanly, no weights, run with confidence, get rid of that sin which uh, clings so closely, and thirdly, run consistently, run with endurance. All right, go back. Let us lay aside every weight. Uh, Let us get off, uh, take off, get rid of, put away anything and everything that can weigh us down and slow us down and keep us from running our best for Jesus. Basically, we could say it this way, get rid of the excess baggage. Get rid of the excess baggage in your life that is slowing you down and keeping you from running your best for Jesus. Now, Chuck Swindoll is so helpful here because Swindoll says, you know the problem with excess baggage is we don't know we have it. The problem with excess baggage is we don't see it, but we all have it. And so there are things in our lives that can slow us down and keep us from running well for Jesus. I used to run, by the way, quite a bit. In fact, when I was in seminary as a student, I ran in the White Rock Marathon in Dallas, Texas. I I was young, uh, lost a bunch of weight, ran the marathon, uh, kept running for a number of years after that. And uh, one day when I came home from the church that I was serving, I went upstairs and I was going to go out and run, I don't know, four or five miles. And uh, so I went upstairs, was taking off my suit and everything. And my youngest son, Timothy, who at that time was about four, came into the house and, and uh, came upstairs into the bedroom, and he was just watching me like a little eagle. You know how our kids can be, just, just eyeballing me. And he had noticed that I'd taken off all of my clothes and that I'd put on a T-shirt, and I'd also put on my nylon running shorts, but I had not put on any underwear underneath the nylon running shorts. And so he said, Daddy, how come you didn't put any underwear back on? 
And I said, well, son, um, I had to think for a moment. Um, th- these are running shorts. And uh, they're like swimming trunks. They've got underwear already inside of them. And he said, well, I'd like to see. <laughs> so I, um, you know, took them off, handed them to him. And he looked at them for a moment, uh, back and forth, gave them back to me. And he said, I don't, I don't see any underwear in there. And I do what dads often do. I said, well, son, take daddy's word for it. There's underwear in there. Now you go play. I got things to do. And I, I sent him out of the bedroom. Well, those of you that are here this morning that are parents uh, like me have learned over the years a very important lesson. And that lesson is this. Sometimes your children pay absolutely zero attention to what you say. I mean, they tune you out. They turn you out. And they don't hear a word you're saying. But... They always pay attention to what you do, always. So a few weeks later, we were getting ready to go to church, and uh, Charlotte, my sweet wife, had dressed uh, Timothy first, and she was now working on Paula, Nathan, and Jonathan. And, and without saying a word to us, Timothy goes upstairs to his bedroom, and uh, he takes off his shoes, he takes off his pants, he takes off his underwear, puts his pants back on, puts his shoes back on, never says a word to us. Well, he comes back downstairs, we get in the car, we go to church. Later, we learned, to my eternal horror, that as soon as we dropped him off, the following conversation took place. His wonderful teacher, Miss Terry, came over like she always did, gave him a big old hug, and and stepped back and said, well, Timothy, sweetheart, how are you doing today? And Timothy looked up and said, oh, I'm just fine. I don't have any underwear on. (laughs) My daddy doesn't wear underwear, and I don't wear underwear either. I'd like to say a couple of things before I move on. Uh, number one, uh, I do have my underwear on this morning. <laughs> Just take it by faith. Just take it by faith. <laughs> Secondly, you probably think, well, I bet when you go out and run now, big boy, you wear your underwear. No, if I'm going to go out and run a, a 5K race, that's 3.1 miles. A 10K, that's 6.2 miles. A marathon, 26 miles. You kidding me? I am going to run as lightly and cleanly and unencumbered as I possibly can. I don't want anything, anything that I don't need. Boy, isn't the spiritual lesson so clear? You're here this morning, and by God's amazing grace, you've been saved. Oh, not because you come to church. You can come to church and go to hell. Uh, Not because you give some money. You can give money and go to hell. Uh, not because you've been baptized. You can be baptized 10,000 times and go to hell. You're, you have been saved because you came to the end of yourself and you recognized that you had nothing whereby you could commend yourself to God except your sin. And in God's amazing grace, he took his sin upon himself and he gave you in the place of your sin his righteousness when you repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus and God saved you and God got you in the race. But now here's the question. How well are you running this morning? Let me ask it another way. Is there a time in your life when you were running better than you're running today? Is there a time when your walk with Jesus, when your your sweet fellowship with him was more precious than it it is today? And if if the answer is yes, then the question that falls up is why? Or maybe, you know, yeah, I'm a believer, but you know, Danny, I mean, you know, it's just sort of a, it's, it's just part of my life. It's just part of your life. It's not the the core of your life. It's not the center of your life. It's not the main thing of your life. I mean, you go through the day and you just give kind of a a passing thought to Jesus. 
You, you, you're born again. You, you truly have put your faith and trust in Christ, and yet you hardly ever touch this book. How do you do that? It, this is a love letter from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and yet you you spend very little time. You know, how, how does that how does that how, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? See, some of you are here today, and you're so weighed down. With anger, with bitterness. Some of you guys, you worry. Oh, you worry. Why do you worry? Because you got weights in your life that are keeping you from having a sweet, precious, day-by-day intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And he didn't want you to be saved to worry. He wanted you to be saved to serve him with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving and and just enjoy what it means to, to follow him. And you say, well... How do I find my weights? I tell you what, why don't you go home this afternoon and just get along with the Lord for about two minutes and say, Lord, show me, show me the weights of my life. I bet he'll do a pretty good job. Yeah, I know the excess baggage, sometimes we don't see it, but the fact of the matter is if you just take a few moments and ask the question, it usually pops up there pretty good. You say, you have any weights? Oh, I've got weights. I'm extremely impatient. I'm working on it, but I'm not making much progress. And, of course, you know what God does. He just keeps bringing folks into my life that just drive me to distraction. I mean, you know, God says, you know, I'm going to make you long-suffering. And so I'm going to bring people into your life that make you suffer long until you figure it out. And son, he just keeps bringing them by the droves. And I, I mean, you know, I'm like, Lord, I'm trying. Well, no, you're not. Not really. So I just keep, you know, dealing with it. But i got other areas. I'm not gonna, it's not time for confession time. I'm not in a confessional this morning. I just know there are areas in my life that are not that hard to spot. And I know that unless I put those things at the foot of the cross and let Christ take them away, I will be less effective in my service and I will not experience all the blessing and joy and delight in him that he promised me when I trusted him as my Lord and Savior as a 10-year-old little boy. You've got to run the race cleanly. You've got to run the race with confidence. He says, lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Now, I'm convinced that the ESV made a bad translation. You say, why? Because there's a definite article in the Greek text before the word sin. The others get it right. It is the sin. The sin which entangles. The sin which clings so closely. The sin which ensnares us. And I'm convinced because of the context of Hebrews 12 being preceded by Hebrews 11 that the sin... See, a lot of times preachers will say, and I respect them, I just disagree here. But a lot of times preachers will say, well, you know, we all have our the sin, don't we? You got your the sin, and you got your the sin, and you got your the sin, and so you got your the sin. No, no, no. I think the sin is the same sin for everybody. You say, well, what do you think that sin is? I think it's the sin of unbelief. You say, whoa, hold on, time out. You're telling me that you think a Christian can be guilty of unbelief? I'm telling you this morning, I think most Christians are guilty of unbelief. Oh, you're trusting Jesus to take you to heaven when you die. You just can't trust him to get you through the week. Because here's how unbelief, stay with me, here's how unbelief works. It's very seductive. Unbelief says something like this. For me to to stay in the race, for me to serve Jesus, I need the Lord plus and once you add that plus sign, I do, not, I do not care how you fill in the blank. You now live in the world of unbelief. I need the Lord plus my mate 
you live in unbelief. I need the Lord plus my job. You live in unbelief. I need the Lord plus my health. You live in unbelief. I need the Lord plus my bank account. You live in unbelief. Job, in chapter 13 and verse 15 of the book that bears his name, said it this way, Though God slay me, I will still trust in him. Are you there? Am I there? Takes away everything. And all I have is Jesus. Is Jesus really enough? I was in the Sudan last uh, May. Met a wonderful pastor there named Sam. Sam was from, is from Uganda. Sam saw his parents brutally murdered when he was 12 years old by a marauding cultic tribe there that still today terrorizes Uganda and also Kenya. But by God's grace, Sam was led to a Christian family that led him to Christ. And then Sam, as a young man, believed that God was calling him to the ministry. And so Sam came to a little Bible college there in Kajikaji, Sudan, where he studied for two years. And we went over there for a Bible conference. And while we were there, we helped do uh, evangelism in some of the villages in an area where Sam now pastors a church. By the way, Pastor Sam pastors a church that meets under three mango trees. And when we were leaving Kajikaji, we wanted to be a blessing to Sam. And so we got him uh, in a a room where we were staying. And we we got around and we laid hands on him and prayed over him. Then we said, Sam, you know, we would really like to bless you. You've been such a blessing to us. He has such joy in Jesus. It's really a remarkable thing to see. And so we said, here's what we've done. We've taken up some money and we are buying for you two ox, a plow, and enough seed to plow the land adjacent to those three mango trees where you're going to be pastoring that church. And by the way, since some of us at this point in time in our lives have been blessed financially, we're going to, three of us got together, and we put together enough money to also buy your tukul. A tukul is a hut. It's, it's the thing they live in. That's just what they call it there. So if you were to meet Pastor Sam today uh, in uh, Kajikaji, Sudan, you'd meet a man that owns two sets of clothes, a pair of sandals, a Bible, two ox, a plow, some seed, and a tukul, and that's all he has. That's all he has. And yet I've seldom in my life met anyone that had greater joy, greater happiness, and greater confidence in Jesus than Sam. And you see, what I learned on that experience is this, and and hear me and hear me well. The person who has Jesus plus nothing actually has everything. And the person who has everything minus Jesus actually has nothing. And some of you in this room, compared to Sam, you are a multi, 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 multi millionaire. And yet you're not happy. You have no joy because you don't have Jesus. Or if you do have him, again, you've kicked him to the curb and he's just sort of on the sideline over there and he's not the center of your life and no wonder you're miserable. No wonder things just don't seem to be working out. No wonder you can't get happy in the rat race. By the way, nobody gets happy in the rat race. Nobody. You get happy when you kill the rat. Cut that sucker's head off and then just get back with Jesus. There's where you find happiness and joy, and meaning, and satisfaction. But you got to run the race with confidence. But then you got to run the race consistently. Last phrase of verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That simply means 
God is not impressed with shooting star Christians, and he is not. But he is impressed with those who just keep running and running and running and running and running faithfully all the way to the end. So you find encouragement, you focus on the essentials, and then very quickly you follow the example. And we don't get any example, brothers and sisters, in verse 2 and 3. We get the greatest example of all, the Lord Jesus. He says two things. Verse 2, he says, as you run, look at him. And then in verse 3, as you run, think about him. Look at him, think about him. Verse 2, looking to Jesus. It's a present participle. It means a continuous action. Furthermore, the word looking there is a very strong word, which means to look at intently. It means to gaze at. I mean, it means like you lock on to this thing and you don't see anything else. I think a great way of illustrating is what happens when you get married. Uh, I married my beautiful wife, Charlotte, on May the 27th, 1978, 33 plus years ago. And when I married her that Saturday night at the Ash Street Baptist Church in Forest Park, Georgia, I didn't say it exactly like this, but basically I was saying something like this. Uh, Charlotte, girl, I want to tell you something. There are a lot of beautiful, gifted, talented, wonderful women out there in the world, and there certainly is. But I make a promise today. I make a promise to you. I make a promise to God. I make a promise to these witnesses. And I'm making a promise to our future children and grandchildren. And here's the promise from this day forward and for the rest of my life. I promise I will have eyes for only one lady. And that one lady is always going to be you. That is, by the way, what you do when you get married. In the same way... God's Word says there are a lot of things out there in the world that want your heart, that want your affection, that want to take the place of Jesus. But when everything is said and done, just glue your eyes to Him. Why? He tells you. Uh, He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Founder, He gets you in it. Perfecter, He gets you to the end. How do I know He can do this? Because who for the joy that was... Now, look at this phrase. Don't, Don't run past it. Who for the joy that was set... Before him. You see that same exact phrase back up in verse 1. You say, why does he repeat it? Because he's telling you that God's son also ran in a race. You say, God calls everyone to run in a race? Yes, even his own son. Well, where did the race that God had for his son take his son? He tells you, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. God's race for his son involved his death. And listen to me this morning. I don't care who you are, where you're from, where you're going, what you've done. I hope you, if you remember nothing else but this, I'll be happy. The cross tells you and me this. God loves you and me so much. He was willing to kill his son so he would not have to kill you. That's the story of the cross. You say, whoa, that that makes me feel uncomfortable. Good, it should. You say, well, wait a minute. I I, I thought the Romans killed him. Oh, they had their hand in it. I I thought the Jews killed him. They had their hand in it. I've been often told that my sin, your sin played a role as well. But when everything is said and done, Isaiah chapter 53 says, it pleased the Father to crush His son. Don't you ever, 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 ever forget. God killed Jesus so he would not have to kill you. 
That is how great is the love of the Father and the Son for unworthy sinners like you and like me. By the way, you turn your back on His Son and He will kill you. You turn your back on His Son and He will kill you and you will spend eternity in a place called hell. As Hebrews says earlier, you literally walk over the cross and the blood of God's Son whereby He provided a way for you to be saved. No, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now He sits at the right hand of the throne of God. So you look at Him. And then you think about in verse 3, consider him. It means to meditate upon. Meditate upon him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you won't grow weary or faint-hearted. I, I would say it this way, paraphrasing it, so that you don't get depressed and discouraged and drop out of the race. Several years ago, I had three Mormon missionaries come to my house there in Wake Forest. They wanted to visit, and I said, sure, come on in. And so they came in, and, and I said, here's, and here, by the way, here's, you, want, you want to know how to work, witness someone that's in a cult or a false teaching? It's very easy. So, you know, I admire people that are serious about their faith, and so I tell you what, I'm going to give you 15 minutes. I'm not going to say a word, and I want you in those 15 minutes to tell, tell me how, how I can know that when I die, I'll go to heaven and that I can have a right relationship with God. And, 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 and when you're finished, then you'll give me 15 minutes uninterrupted, since it's your house, you can make the rules. And, 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 and I'll tell you what I believe a person has to do uh, to go to heaven and have a right relationship with God. And so I gave them their 15 minutes. It didn't go too well. I got my 15 minutes, and it went even worse. And uh, afterwards, I said, man, I think this is so cool. I, I would like for you guys to come back again. And if you got some more friends, won't you bring them? And uh, they looked at me like I'd lost my mind, and they said, what do you do? And I said, excuse me? And they said, what do you do? And I said, oh, I, uh, I, uh, I, I, I'm a teacher. That's, that's true. I, I'm a teacher. Where do you teach? Well, now I'm, I'm, I'm trapped. So I said, well, I teach at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary up on the hill. And they said, oh. Then they said, would you let us come to your class? And I said, Sure. Tomorrow at 9 o'clock, I teach systematic theology. And tomorrow, I just happen to be in the area of Christology, the person and the work of Christ. So they came to my class the next day, sat on the front row right there. I lectured for my 50 minutes when I got through. They said, well, what are you going to do now? I said, well, I'm going to chapel. Would you like to come? Yeah. So my three Mormon missionary friends came to chapel, sat on the front row again right over there. That morning, a man named... Charles Page, who used to be the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Charlotte, he's now in heaven, he dialed from multiple myeloma, but Charles Page preached, and he preached on Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. I don't remember most of the sermon. What I do remember is this, and Charles did not know that three Mormon missionaries were sitting over there on the front row. He did not know, but he made this statement. So if, if you remember two statements, one, God killed his son so he wouldn't have to kill you, that, that's statement one. Remember this one, statement two. Speaking to what he thought was simply a room full of young men and women going into the ministry, he said, I want to tell you something as you move forward in your life. Anything in life that gets your eyes off of Jesus, mark it down, it's not of God. And then he said, let's pray. Anything in life 
that gets your eyes off of Jesus, mark it down, it's not of God. I was sitting on the platform, and when he said that, it did not surprise me that all three of those Mormon missionaries began to stare at the carpet because in Mormonism, as in every false teaching, ultimately, the way you get saved is not by looking to Jesus, but by looking to yourself. What can I do that will make God let me into heaven? What can I do that will cause God to receive me? What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? You see, Tim Keller is right. Every religion in the world can be subsumed under two words. Do or done. Do or done. I am saved by what I do. That's false religion. Or I'm saved by what another has done for me. That's real religion. Done for me by Jesus who died on that cross and who was killed by his father that his father would not have to kill you or kill me. So this morning the invitation is very simple. Spiritually speaking, where are your eyes? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this very powerful passage that convicts me every time I read it. And I am overwhelmed at the grace and goodness and mercy and kindness and love of a God who would indeed kill his son so I would not have to be killed. That can only be called amazing grace. And how I thank you this day for that amazing grace that makes it possible for any sinner to move from death unto life, to transfer his eternal destiny from hell to heaven, all because of Jesus. And this morning, Lord, it is my prayer that not a man or a woman or even one of these young teenagers or one of these boys or girls would leave today without a certainty and an assurance that I belong to Jesus. I am setting my heart and my mind and my eyes and everything that I am, I'm giving it to Jesus. And I want to run the race for him. Not because I have to, but because I get to. I want to run out of thanksgiving and, and gratitude for what he has done for me. And Lord Jesus, I want to run well. And Lord Jesus, I want to finish well. And I don't want to be distracted. I don't want to run in unbelief. I don't want to run with my eyes looking at the wrong things. I want to run looking to you every step of the way. And Father, how I thank you this morning that sometimes in the race when we become weary, discouraged, beaten down, and we can't hardly even walk, much less run. If we will fix our eyes on Jesus, amazingly, you scoop us up and carry us. And then we actually discover you've been carrying us every step of the way anyway. What an awesome, awesome Savior you are. So Lord, now as we come to this time of invitation where men and women Boys and girls can respond as you speak to their heart. Lord, may it be today that there's somebody here who would say, you know, I've got to be honest, 
I've been counting on what I could do rather than what Jesus has done for me. And I've been distracted and my eyes have been off Christ. And I realize today more than ever, I need Jesus at the very heart and center of my life. I desperately need him. Lord, your word says, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will in no wise cast out anyone who comes to me. So, Lord, may it be today that folks will come to Jesus and find in him everything they ever hoped, everything they ever imagined, and even so much more than all of that. We give you praise and glory, King Jesus, praying this in your name. Amen. Pastors here at the front, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation.